Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Proverbs. We will pick up in the middle of chapter 21, somewhere around verse 10 or so, give, give ourselves a running start into the new material. And a reminder that this time next week, our class will not be meeting. We'll be in the sanctuary watching the children do the Christmas story from the scriptures. So that'll be next week. And next week is the 17th. The week after that is Christmas Eve. So we won't have Sunday school on Christmas Eve, nor will we have Sunday school the week after on New Year's Eve. So after this class, we'll see you in a month or something like that here. Hope we don't forget everything we learned. So let's begin with an invocation and a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So Proverbs chapter 21, verse 10, The soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no mercy in his eyes. So evil inherently selfish and inherently unmerciful. There's a paradox of evil. Evil always wants mercy for itself, but then hands out none. And you might have noticed that about your own fallen nature, that that's exactly the way your own fallen nature works. We'll make any excuse, beg any indulgence, but then when it comes to the smallest infraction, then all of a sudden the flesh just wants pure justice. So the soul of the wicked desires evil. His heart orients him toward Evil, that which is contrary to God, that which is in accordance with his own heart, not with the heart and will of God. Thus his neighbor finds no mercy in his eyes. Whereas God is rather the merciful one, and those who love God, love what is good, are good, are righteous, thus show mercy as God shows mercy. Okay, 11. When a scoffer is punished, the simple becomes wise. Again, as we touched on this last week, it's likely that the scoffer here is not someone who's so far gone that they can't be corrected. So then the simple is identical to the scoffer. So as the scoffer is punished, then he becomes wise or the simple becomes wise. And when a wise man is instructed, he gains knowledge. So obviously we'd rather, you know, I I don't think you can go too far off the rails here if you even wanted to say a kind of, see a kind of progress one goes from a scoffer who is punished and thus the simple as a simple person becomes wise and then as a wise no longer punished but rather instructed and ever gaining in knowledge that would be a way of tying both halves of the proverb together 12 the righteous one And you'll note in the ESV, anyway, that that's capitalized, and for good reason. Christ is the righteous one. And it's good to recall that, that wherever it talks about the righteous ones, plural, or the righteous, inferring many who are righteous, we are all righteous because we are in Christ, who is the righteous one. And so good to always call that to mind. There's those, those two kinds of righteousness, as it were, the righteousness by which we are justified freely as a gift apart from all our works, and then that righteousness we have in him that he, that he works together with us synergistically. We cooperate with the Holy Spirit, the Book of Concord says, and we progress in that righteousness, a, a kind of ontological righteousness. Okay, so the righteous one observes the house of the wicked, he throws the wicked down to ruin. So this would fit firmly in that category of Proverbs that remind us that God sees and God judges. A very common refrain of the wicked throughout the minor prophets, say for example, well the major prophets too, that whole time period, is this 
idea or sometimes this statement, God does not see or God is far away. Effectively, God, God if he exists, doesn't care. <laughs> so this is yet another proverb uh, here. For those of you who walked in chapter 21 and we are looking at verse 12. So the righteous one observes the house of the wicked. Very apropos of uh, Vicar's sermon today as well. And in due time, he throws the wicked down to ruin. So conduct yourself accordingly. Don't be, don't be wicked. K13, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. So this is an important kind of proverb and an important kind of statement that we find repeatedly in the scriptures. It's these kinds of statements that create in us a true godly fear and humility. Remember the catechism? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. We, we really go, you know, grab hold of that idea of love and trust. <laughs> Especially trust. Maybe not so much love and then not so much at all fear. But here this kind of proverb is very important for the well-being of our souls because it, it creates a kind of godly and pious fear in us. We can't just claim, well, God hears all my prayers because I have faith in Jesus. Now, that kind of statement might, like, in general, in the main, be true. But that doesn't mean that God's one to be manipulated. You can just toss the, toss the Jesus coin into the dispensary and out will come your prayer. You have to, one, you have to realize that God is not mocked. God cannot be manipulated. And so here is one of these stark warnings. Whoever closes the ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. The deeper realization is that we're all poor. The deeper realization is that God allows poverty. And here I'm talking about, I'm predominantly talking about people in, who are operating in good faith and goodwill to good purpose, to good end, even just civilly speaking. I'm not talking about grifters. I'm not talking about people who are con artists and scammers, many of whom reside on the, corn, on the street corners. So this is, you know, begging for money. So don't understand me in an overly simplistic manner here or this proverb in an overly simplistic manner. But when you know that someone is genuinely poor, genuinely in need, and you have it and could provide it and you don't, what makes you think that God would hear you when you cry out? That's the sense of this proverb creates that godly fear, creates that repentance, creates humility and creates then eyes to see the world that God permits poverty to come upon some as an occasion that those who have might bless and benefit them. So that's part of God's working on both the poor and the wealthy alike. Okay, 14, and then maybe we'll take a quick pause and see if you have any thoughts on the Proverbs here to four. A gift in secret averts anger, a concealed bribe, strong wrath. Now, this is not an endorsement. This is one of those very thought-provoking Proverbs that simply states a way of the world. And this is just kind of a truism that very frequently, and, and very frequently, maybe most frequently of all, in evil, to, toward evil ends, is a gift given in secret or a concealed bribe. The scriptures are categorically against bribes. So that latter especially kind of evokes a sense of disgust, but a realization of how men are manipulated by money. And of course then, by contrast, how we don't want to be manipulated by money. We don't want to be manipulated by prestige or by personality or by means or by some sort of bias toward one person or another. So those would be positive takeaways from a proverb like this. A gift 
in secret averts anger is probably, I mean, again, just in terms of the experience of a fallen world, most commonly witnessed amongst the fallen. But in another sense, you can see that even a small act of kindness can turn away anger. So that's worth meditating upon also. How do you deflate when something's, when something's blown up, maybe even publicly in front of other people, when something's escalated, when tensions are running high, how would you deflate that? And maybe, again, I'm trying to take a positive spin on this proverb as I just kind of meditate on it and think on it from all different angles. Maybe there is some wisdom in some cases to trying to go in secret to that person and show them a mercy, show them a kindness. Give, give some small gift or token of your goodwill and that can then deflate the problem and in some sense maybe even make the public nature of the problem go away. Okay, so worth chewing on, worth looking at from all different angles here. Proverbs 14, a gift in secret averts anger and a concealed bribe, strong wrath. Let me pause there and see if you have any reflections on the Proverbs heretofore. I have a question on number 12. The righteous one considers the house of the wicked and turning the wicked to ruin. When it says the righteous one, is that referring just to God? I mean, should we think of that as God considers the house of the wicked or is he, or is he talking about generally more or less righteous people? I, so I think exegetically he's referring to God. But by extension... The ministers of God, I'm thinking particularly a godly prince, might well look at the wicked with their ill-gotten gains and intentionally bring it to ruin. So either God or those in the offices of God, according to the jurisdiction they've been given. That's a possibility. Yeah, thank you for that. Okay, anything else we want to touch on? Let's power on. 15. When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. This is a fantastic proverb. Again, it's in keeping with Vicar's sermon today as well. Try not to do any spoilers here for those of you who haven't heard it. But the idea is that uh, objective justice is received in two very different ways, isn't it? Objective justice, or a just ruler, received in two very different ways. To the wicked, a terror. To the righteous, a joy. And of course, that goes as deeply as creation itself, because God in his own person, God in his own being, is just. He's righteous, he's just, he's also gracious and merciful. He's all these things, the scriptures attribute it to him. And as one who is just, those who are likewise righteous, I mean, look at the proximity of the righteous one in 12, that's obviously, as we've said, God or Christ even more explicitly. Then here you have, I believe, the first use of the term the righteous after that so when justice is done it is a joy to the righteous but it is terror to evildoers if you loop that back to 12 the righteous one observes the house of the wicked he throws the wicked down to ruin that is a joy to the righteous but it's terror to other evildoers because their houses might be next and this is an important it's an important thing to regaining our senses in a land where Christianity has really just been replaced with the religion of nice, is recognizing that when justice is done and evildoers are punished, that's a good thing and that's something to rejoice in. So in the book of Revelation, when Babylon finally has her fall and the wicked of the world are being wiped out by God and driven away, 
Christians aren't weeping and wailing and gnashing their teeth and wringing their hands at, oh, what could have, should have maybe been. They're rejoicing. Even listen to the text today. If you don't have your head and or heart screwed on straightly, when you hear the Old Testament text today, you'll hear that the wicked are trampled under our feet like ashes and stubble. And this is put forward by the scriptures as a positive thing. So if that idea is like abhorrent to you, you might want to check why. (laughs) Why do you feel so differently about that than the Holy Spirit does? So here too then, um, I think that this theme can be seen, that the righteous one is the one who executes justice. That's a joy to those who are righteous. It's terror to evildoers. I mean, what is the very obvious elephant in the room, you know, that someone might say in opposition to this? Well, aren't, aren't we all evildoers? Well, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that we have sin. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But, if we confess that sin, God is faithful and just and forgives our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So, yeah, there's a wickedness, but that wickedness is taken away, is blotted out, is forgiven and cleansed in the blood of Christ. So, no, there's a genuine category of the righteous. And that's exactly in accord with the scriptures, then, that make a distinction between the righteous and the evildoers as for example here in verse 15. So God, from his angle, is very, very clear. He preaches the law in order to convict the world of sin. Here is my moral standard. Here is how all have fallen short of the glory of myself. He sets forth his own son as a propitiation, as an atoning sacrifice, blotting out the sins of the world objectively, and then he sends countless messengers out into the world proclaiming that forgiveness, that it might be believed. With the third part of his message being that he will return in wrath and in judgment. And he is giving this day of escape, or this day of salvation, this mode and and means of escape in his son Jesus Christ. And all who receive Jesus Christ in faith will have no condemnation, will be saved, will not fall under just wrath, just condemnation. So that is, we are living as, as Christ our, our Lord himself preaches, in days that are very much like unparalleled to the days of Noah. The flood was coming to wipe away the world and wipe out the world and Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Repent and be saved. Get in the boat. Everyone scoffed. We're in a very parallel situation. It's just not a flood of water that's coming, but the scriptures say a flood of fire. And our message is effectively the same. Get in the boat. We're preachers of righteousness. Get in the boat. What is that boat? It's not the gopher wood, but the wood of the cross. It's the ark of the Holy Christian Church. It's not Noah at the helm, but Christ. It's not seven others, but the sevenfold communion of the saints. And the message of the church is, get in or you're done for. And we need to regain that voice because it's so much more biblical and also, by the way, so much more compelling than, pretty please, how low can I make the the cost? How easy can I make it for you? Come on in. You know, just he'll take you as you are. It's just all nonsense. Get in or you're going to die is the biblical model. So to regain a proper understanding of God's wrath and to rejoice in that wrath and in that justice when it in fact comes because it's good and it's right. We already agree that it's good and right. That's why we've repented and gotten in the darn boat. <laughs> okay, yes, sir. Can you identify maybe some points in time where Christianity, Christianity became soft? 
or at least in the U.S. I mean, I, I mean no, so seriously. Good. I mean, so you know, good. you have this fire in the New Testament, and then what happens? Is we just fat, dumb, and happy, or what's going on? Yeah, all the time. I mean, all the time. So, so this is a problem with God's people from the moment they set out from Egypt. They're, they're soft, they're unbelieving, they're unwilling to suffer, they don't, they know what's going on and they have every reason to know what's going on, but for whatever reason they refuse to. And even to the point where God, I mean, I don't believe that this was really, get tangled up in our thoughts here, but if you read the biblical text, God wasn't like, okay, I'm going to cause them to all rebel against me so that we can wander around in the wilderness for 40 years and wait for them to die off. No, that was very clearly in the narrative of the text, God's reaction to their softness, as it were. Now, maybe even more to the point, though, would be that as they go into the land itself, the promised land itself, immediately there's softness. Because God says there are wicked and abominable people here who worship wicked and abominable gods, and they will never turn to me. Wipe them out. That's what God says. We go, oh, that was the Old Testament God. Since when, A, since when are we Marcians and uh, Marcionites? And B, that just is exhibit A of our own profound softness. That we are a soft, decadent people of God, ripe for wrath. So they go in and they refuse to wipe out all the wicked people whom God says wipe out. That's softness. And that's trying to be more gracious than God. Trying to be more gospelly than God Himself, which is a grave sin and error—the error of softness. The, it's ultimately the error of anomia, of lawlessness. And then that is, that is on exhibit all the way through. So, especially as God prospers the kingdom, though the wealthier they get, the worse it gets. And you have all these—you have all these taunts about the ivory houses and ivory beds that they've all built, and that they think they're going to live in these things forever, and all their fields filled with you know great grapes and fantastic grains. And uh, and God's taunt against them is: there's other people who are going to sleep in your fine houses. There's other people who are going to dine on your grain, and there's other people who are going to drink all your wine. So the the Tragically, the history of God's people. I mean, it would be it would be more it would be almost impossible to find. I'd have to think about it. Maybe though, with the whole collective wisdom of the room, I'd have to really think about it. Can anyone in here think of an example in Scripture where God was like, "Ah, you followed me too literally," <laughs> or God was like, uh, "You know, I asked this hard thing of you, and you did it." I can't believe you did it. That's ridiculous. You were, <laughs> I was testing you. I can't think of a single time. But I can think of lots of times, virtually countless times, where God says, do this, and his people uh, waffle for one reason or another. And those men that stand out, we would, I mean, would, they'd be all excommunicated right now in our church. But, I mean, you think of, uh, okay, so I was, yeah. Let's, can we take a quick field trip? I saw a hand come up in the back. I'm, I'm happy to entertain that. I'd love to take it just a very quick field trip with you so you can get a flavor for what I'm on about here. Um, yeah, move to the, we'll move to the hand. If everybody wants to turn to 1 Kings, I, want to show, I just want to show you this really quick because it's fantastic. I mean, imagine that. The Bible is fantastic. And the Bible really is filled with all kinds of wisdom. Mm. Oh, as far as testing Abraham and Isaac. Yeah, yeah. So, so Abraham was, was deemed to be faithful, was found to be faithful. Um, even kind of in this dramatic way that makes us wrinkle our brains because we're not used to storytelling this. But even kind of this dramatic way where the angel of the Lord says, Now I know that you will not withhold from me your even anything, even your own son, Right. Yeah, I can't, but I can't think of any place in which God condemns someone for being exactly what he tells them to be. I can think of lots of examples of people falling short of that. This isn't quite that, but there is the case where God says, I'm going to destroy this people and said, Mo, and Moses says, no, you can't do that's that. That's a good example. Yeah, you that's can't a do good that. example. That'll make your name stink. 
And I, yeah. and I think I think you know, of course, God was testing Moses, but right, you right, know, right, right. I, obviously, he knows everything that's going to happen. Nothing mm-hmm. comes as a surprise to him. But mm-hmm. but uh, there's the same possibility, the same kind of dynamic at play when Jesus is dealing with the adulterous woman. It kind of hinges upon what he writes. But one of the leading theories is that he basically writes down uh, what the law demands and then basically says, okay, let's go for it. But, and, w- and what he does effectively is he calls their bluff because the whole thing is predicated upon a bluff. Uh, she was caught red-handed. Where's the man? Yeah, I, I, don't right? think she, I, yeah, I don't think she actually was caught red-handed, but yeah. So, yeah, uh, allegedly she was caught red-handed. Where's the man? He isn't there. That's in accord with the law. Anyway, Jesus says, okay, let's do it, but you first. Which is also a huge problem because it, it shows the bluff. That why, why did they have to go to Pilate to have Jesus crucified? They didn't have the authority to stone that woman. And so Jesus is like, no, go for it. Let's do it. So that's a, possi- that's a possibility. So, yeah, I, I, think, I think you're right. I think that where God says, yep, that's it. Let's destroy the people. What do you think, Moses? Are you on board? <laughs> and he, in a very Christ-like way, goes, wait a minute. Yeah, and okay, so those two, and those two point toward the wrath of God. Um, you could think of the, so there, that kind of opens the category. As long as we're willing to be more soft with it, it opens the category to stories of mediation. So you've got the uh, parable of the, uh, remember the parable of the tree that's not growing any fruit and, and the farmer, whatever, the head honcho guy goes, okay, it's sat here for three years and it's not producing any fruit, cut it down. And then you have the mediation of the, the vineyard dresser or whatever who comes and says, let me dig around the roots, let me put in the manure. So yeah, if we open it a little more broadly, I think we're slightly moving the goalposts, slightly shifting, but then, yeah, you've got some biblical examples of mediation. Yeah, all of that pointing, all of that pointing, yeah, all of that pointing to Jesus, yeah, the wrath of God, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, so that's um, that's a possibility. But isn't that isn't that? Wouldn't you say? And here's where I think the goalposts move. Wouldn't you say that that's still a categorical shift away from having mercy, where God said no mercy? I think it's a categorical shift. You have the you have like the mediating or the pleading for um, Sodom and Gomorrah. Like if you find, I can't remember the exact numbers, but like if you find forty righteous, <laughs> if you find thirty righteous, ten, he kind of whittles God down there. <laughs> Yeah, so maybe that would be maybe that'd be the best set of examples. Okay, Jonah was brought up as the example with uh, Nineveh. Nineveh, right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, well, that preaching is interesting because, I mean, Jonas, I think it's might be the, it might be a candidate for the shortest sermon in all of the scriptures. Because he just says something like, and I can't remember off the top of my head, but he, Jonah's whole sermon to Nineveh is like, you know, because he doesn't really want to be there, obviously. That's the whole story. And then once he in, is there, his heart really hasn't profoundly changed. That's <laughs> like the lowest effort, most effective sermon. Probably in the history of the world. We pour all these hours into making our sermons, you know, effective and pleasing and all of this other stuff. And, you know, God, God does what he wants to do. And the same is true with Jonah. He just shows up and says something like, repent or God's going to cook all of you. And they're, like, the king's like, oh my gosh, okay, sackcloth and ashes, even the animals, everybody fasted. Okay, so thank you. Yeah, good. Did you have you something well, else? Well, it just seemed to me there is one difference between the case where God says, you know, lower the boom on this people, right, and don't show mercy, like say in, in the Old Testament where, where, you know, the people of Israel are told, told to wipe out a certain group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, right, in all the cases we're talking about, someone does some mediating, someone someone repents often, right? In Nineveh, right? The people repented. Sure. Now, what we don't have any evidence of in the Bible is that, you know, when God said, wipe, wipe them out, that they were all saying, wait a second, wait a second, we all want to follow God. And, and, and then God was mad because 
they didn't put him to the sword. Right. Right. I mean, it wasn't like that. It was people who were very much not interested in repenting and would yes. continue killing Israelites if they could. Yes. And, and yeah, and that's and I mean that sheds light on the nature of the scriptures themselves. Like, if God just decided in His mind, I want all these people to die. Are you going to tell him? Like, why bother? Why waste the ink? Why waste the prophet? Why not just wipe them out? So all of the all of the threats and utterances of Scripture, whether they come true or not, in you know, in the minor, I mean, God because God can relent and change His mind as He did with Nineveh. Uh, if why does God set forward that warning? It's in hope that they'll turn and that he can turn and he can relent and not bring this disaster upon them, etc. Yeah, so all the scriptural utter, utterances that end up being even true about how God destroys a time or a place are, are set ahead of time that it might not happen. Or that at least individuals might repent and escape, uh, even though the temporal consequence has already been decided. Take a look at 1 Kings. Um, Go over to, this is, uh, let me see if I can find it here. Yeah, this is a good place to look at chapter 2. So David's old... And he's dying... And, of course, there's one of his sons, Adonijah, is going to uh, try to take over the kingdom. And David, at least, is going to have Solomon reign as, as he had promised. But look at First uh, Kings 2. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses. Uh Uh-oh, looks like David was a legalist. That you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you also know what Joab the son of Zariah did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner the son of Ner and Amasa the son of Jether, whom he killed avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to shale in peace. Okay, he goes on. That's enough to demonstrate, I think, the first point. Um, And the first point is that David on his way out tells Solomon, here's the unfinished business I had. Go handle it. And that's the punishment, the just punishment of the wicked. And David even has to solemnly instruct him, be strong and show yourself a man because you've got to accomplish these things. So David, who has a heart after the Lord, David, who on many occasions is himself quite merciful, especially to Saul, is also quite capable of being hard and doing the hard thing and doing the necessary thing. So I think if you're going to consider the figure of David and that he had a heart you know, that was like the heart of God, you have to consider all sides of David. That he could be a tender shepherd and uh, a solid leader, but he could also be one who can take out the bears and lions and threats to the flock. So Solomon, obviously it starts to go sideways for Solomon at some point. But it comes time, um, let's see. Yeah, I'm just looking ahead. Let me see if I can. This is a pretty astonishing...
Okay, so let's um, let's just pick up at chapter two, verse nineteen. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah, and the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Then he sat on his throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. By the way, this is a complete caveat, but since we're in Advent, why not? So this enthroning of the king's mother and this position um, carries on from Solomon through Judah. So the king's mother is always mentioned. And she is, if, if only a figurehead, a co-regnant with... Uh, so why is that important? That the king of Judah always has his mother enthroned nearby? So think now of Revelation 12. Remember the woman who's in heaven next to the one who's enthroned? And she has the crown of 12 stars, etc. And that, that woman is both the mother of Christ and our mother. So Mary, by way of uh, type, but more than Mary, of course, the whole church glorified. But that's where this comes from. Does that mean we worship or pray to Mary? No. But it does mean, and does it mean that Roman Catholics clearly exploit this kind of typology to get us to worship Mary? Yes, they try to. But that doesn't mean we have to be ignorant of the typology or uh, somehow deny its, its beauty and its wonder that this is the pattern of the mother and her reigning son all the way through. And then comes time for Advent, and what do you have? The mother and her reigning son. Okay, so that's as an aside. Uh, just picking back up at verse 20, then she said... I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. She said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as his wife. Now, Abishag had been uh, a helper to David. They didn't um, do anything physical, but was about as near as a wife to David you could get without being a wife. And so Adonijah is obviously doing a kind of Absalom move here. So King Solomon responds, verse 22, to his mother, And why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask, him the, uh, ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my older brother. And on his side are Abiathar the priest and Joab the son of Zariah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God, do so to me and more also, if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David my father, who has made me a house as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down and he died. And to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go out to Ananoth, or Anathoth, sorry, Anathoth, to your estate, for you deserve death. But I will not at this time put you to death. Because you carried the ark of the Lord God before David my father, and because you shared in all my father's affliction. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli and Shiloh. That goes back to 1 Samuel. When the news came to Joab, for Joab had reported Adonijah, or had supported Adonijah, although he had not supported Absalom, Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and caught hold of the horns of the altar. It's a wild scene. Not uncommon, but he goes into the tabernacle, grabs hold of the horns of the altar. Pleading what? I mean, the mercy of God. That's the house of God. That's the tent of God. That's the altar of God. That's what Joab is doing. Verse 29, And it was told King Solomon, Joab has fled to the tent of the Lord, and behold, he is beside the altar. Solomon sent Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go strike him down. So Benaiah came to the tent of the Lord and said to him, The king commands, Come out. But he said, No, I will die here. Then Benaiah brought the king word again, saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. The king replied to him, Do as he has said. Strike him down and bury him, and thus take away from me and from my father's house the guilt for the blood that Joab shed without cause. The Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head. 
Because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked and killed with the sword two men more righteous and better than himself. Now, this is legalism from Solomon, of course, that there's two men more righteous and better than another. But I digress. These two, Abner, the son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, or Jether, uh, commander of the army of Judah, so shall their blood come back on the head of Joab and on the head of his descendants forever. But for David and for his descendants and for his house and for his throne, there shall be peace from the Lord forevermore. Uh, how does the peace come? Then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and struck him down and put him to death. And he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. Okay. You're in the sanctuary pleading for mercy. You're grabbing a hold of the horns of the altar. Tough. It's done. So that's the kind of, uh, I mean, this is why I said the saints of old would be excommunicated in our day. Uh, simply for doing justice. And it's this kind of, uh, I think it's this kind of text, I hope you permit the digression, that we need to reread and re-understand. And this kind of account that I just read to you is not uncommon in the scriptures. And it's it's a kind of reorientation toward what is just so that when justice is executed, we delight in it. We don't have a guilty conscience and cower from it and think, oh, it's the person executing justice who's in the error, which is largely where we are as a church and as a people today. So to regain that sense of justice, to delight in justice when it's executed, to not feel guilty or conflicted because we are cleansed by the blood of Christ, our conscience is free. And if someone acts wickedly, they should be treated as such. And even as saints, what's wrong, with, what's wrong with saying, yeah, if I act wickedly in such a manner that it requires temporal punishment, well and good. That's what, it, that's what should happen. Who cares? Joab's actions were also one of, um, he went to, the, to grab the horns because he wanted people to believe that his acts were unintentional. And unintentional acts, if you grab the horns, you know, could be heard for you know, acts of mercy. But his were intentional. Absolutely. So he was mocking God. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Okay. So good question anyway, and I'm sorry for the long answer and digression, but it is good for us to just, I mean, by and large, the whole problem with the church in the West, the church in America right now is we don't read the Bible anymore. That's the whole problem. If we read the Bible, we would stop pearl clutching. We wouldn't be we wouldn't be theologically divided, but we also wouldn't be politically divided, or not nearly as much. A lot of our political division is, is on the basis of Christians not understanding the Bible. It really is the kind of the indictment of our country. If all of us Christians had our heads on straight, knew and understood the Bible, and were for it, this country would still, even still, even now, uh, transform overnight. Pastor. Yes, sir. In, in the context of softness of the church now, uh, I believe back in the 1700s, 1800s, there was a period where there was fire and brimstone preaching, Jonathan Edwards. How are we to view that and what error was happening at that time? Uh, or should we, are you suggesting that we go back more to that type of... <laughs> no, um... Uh, sinners in the in the hands of an angry God. That that kind of preaching um, has a right time and place. I don't know that that, and I'm not trying to give a stamp of approval for that particular sermon or that particular style of preaching. And I just so maybe I could answer your question this way. There are sermons that our Lord preaches. There are sermons in the Bible that don't end on gospel with everybody feeling good. There are entire books in the Bible that don't end with gospel with everybody feeling good. We have to bring that back again. <laughs> if every single sermon, if every single teaching, if every single Bible study, if every single anything is, ends with, but it's okay because of Jesus, what have you just done to the entire content that's come before? You've, you've nullified it. That's a kind of, I mean, if we want to talk about law and gospel categorically, that's a perversion of law and gospel not doing law and gospel. It's a perversion of law and gospel. 
Uh, and if you don't believe me, and if you don't like the Bible, because you like Luther so much, read his sermons. You'll, you'll want the Bible. Because Luther will take the paint off the wall and sit down. Uh, nothing beautiful, nothing pretty, nothing planned out. He'll just full-on rant against the papacy for 20 minutes and sit down. If we don't have place for that in our preaching, then we're doing something alien to Luther. But by the way, if you go looking for other Lutheran sermons, or if you go back looking for church father sermons, we're doing something, then, then we're alien to the entire history of the church. And then again, if you go back and read the Bible itself, we're alien to uh, multiple, multiple sermons of Jesus, parables of Jesus. So many of Jesus' parables are parables of disgust. The whole point is that you're repulsed by what he has just taught. And that's how it ends. <laughs> that you be repulsed. That you not be that way. Yeah. So I, I think that, yeah, again, I mean, I know it always sounds overly simplistic and cliche, but what really ails us is a refusal to read the scriptures and speak the way the scriptures do. And, to, and if we don't like that, to read the church fathers or listen to their sermons and be willing to accept the way that they preached. So all that to say, yeah, there are times and places for sermons. Uh, even Walther in his Law and Gospel, um, remember his theses on Law and Gospel that he taught at the seminary, which has served as, I mean, right or wrong, probably more wrong than right, has served as the baseline homiletics textbook, uh, the preaching textbook in our seminaries. Uh, for a long time, I don't know for how long. But even there, he'll say that there, that if you are preaching to the impenitent or to the heart of heart, it's confusion of law and gospel to give them the gospel. They should receive the law and only the law. I, I don't see much of that. And the Lutheran Church, I don't see hardly any of it. So even then, we've, in the name of law and gospel, in the name of like being, like really truly being the only denomination that gets the gospel, we sure look alien from how we did even 50 years ago, uh, to say nothing of 150 years ago. Yes, please. I'm starting to put uh, one and one together, because um, I remember it was common to hear, you know, the fire and brimstones. It's a subtle mockery. Yeah, and, it is. And, and going through, I remember going through the paragraphs of the sermon, oh, isn't this horrible? And I can also remember this, I've thought for a long time, uh, I was told the Victorian age was so moral and mm. that they would cover the legs of the pianos because that was too <laughs> suggestive. So that was a subtle mockery and it was not true of the age with uh, the writers. Yeah. Completely opposite to what we read. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Okay, very good. Let's, um, let's just jump uh, back to the text, back to Proverbs 21. And I'll read this again. Hopefully it'll just have that much more life and meaning uh, to you. When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. 16. One who wanders from the way of good sense will rest in the assembly of the dead. (laughs) Quite poignant. So, wandering from the way of good sense will rest in the assembly of the dead. I mean, ultimately, this is a picture of Hell, I suppose on just sort of a temporal plane, you could think of it as watch yourself, watch your mind, be conscientious, because if you just wander, you're going to end up dead. This isn't a safe place to just wander, psychologically or otherwise. But in the ultimate sense of this, I think this has everything to do with going to hell. If you wander from the way of good sense, that's the alternative. There's no, there's no other destination. You say, I'm going to depart from good sense for a little bit. I'm going to go my own way. Well, <laughs> that way leads directly to the assembly of the dead. Okay, 17. Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. 
counterintuitive in some degree at least the uh, the love of pleasure is the problem because if you love pleasure are you going to do the hard work necessary to make a living nope so that's the essence then of that first line whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man and then he who loves wine and oil it's the same thing so wine and uh, obviously drinking and then fat that's oil so sluggardly uh, that's what's in view gluttonous so he who loves wine and oil will not be rich so if you would be, um, you know, and again, we're looking at the temporal plane, we're looking at monetary, that all makes perfect sense. Um, there's even something true here spiritually. That the spiritual man who just seeks after his own pleasure and his own good feelings isn't going to get very far. He's going to be a theologically poor man. He's not going to have much treasure in heaven, so to speak. And likewise, he who loves wine and oil will not be rich. That's like mammon. That's like the fineries of the earth. We, it's fine to take, it, to, you know, to take God's good gifts and give thanks for them and receive them with joy. Uh, but it's another thing to let those good gifts consume us. So I think even if we want to look at spiritual riches here, it's good to turn away from pleasures and be about the business of the kingdom, which case, in case you know, no one has told you, we're at war right now. Paul doesn't say, put on the full armor of God and sit back on your couch and grab the Chianti. It, that's not the imagery. We're at war. Put on the full armor of God. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And Paul likens it to a race, to boxing, to wrestling, to mortal combat, to fighting, to war. I mean, th- this is where the scriptures say we are. So how effective are you going to be if, if your whole goal of life is, I'm going to seek leisure, I'm going to seek pleasure, I'm going to seek my own. You've basically taken yourself out of the fight, at best, and or made yourself an easy mark for Satan. So this life isn't the, you know, the time for rest is in heaven. Not Not now. And I understand I'm not trying to make an, over, an, over, you know, an overly technical or overly firm criticism of retirement, but retire in heaven. And I understand if you want to set aside your job that you've been doing or your career that you've been doing, but that just means take your energies and put them somewhere else in service of your neighbor, in service of the kingdom. That's all it means. Retirement to Christians should mean I'm moving from this as one of my chief actions in life to this other thing or these other things is my chief actions in life. The sense of retirement of like, that's it, now to the easy chair. Well, you already know statistically you're just going to die uh, sooner if you do that. But even then, like, that's, no way to, that's no way for a Christian to live. So whatever it is you're doing in this life, lean forward, press onward toward that goal. Recognize you're in a fight and in a battle and rest isn't going to come until heaven. In heaven there is rest and uh, rest in its in its utter and absolute completeness. Okay, that's it. The Lord be with you.